Lesson 3 for April 9 to 15, The Sermon on the Mount. Sabbath afternoon, April 9. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to open your word this week. We're in different countries and different towns and different villages, Lord, and we know that Jesus came that each one of us could have eternal life. As we look at what he had to say to the people about him, as he expressed his thoughts, as he taught them as one having authority, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and bless us in the opening of your word this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text is Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. Let's read that again, Matthew seven twenty-eight and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. In the book of Exodus, we see God leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, baptize them in the Red Sea, bring them through the wilderness for 40 years, work signs and wonders, and meet with them personally on a mountaintop where he gave them his law. In the book of Matthew, we see Jesus come out of Egypt, be baptized in the Jordan River, go out into the wilderness for 40 days, work signs and wonders, and meet personally with Israel on a mountaintop, where he amplifies this same law. Jesus walked the history of Israel, became Israel, and in him all the covenant promises were fulfilled. The Sermon on the Mount is the most powerful sermon ever preached. His words have profoundly influenced not only its immediate listeners, but all who would hear its life-changing messages down through the centuries, and even to our time. And yet, we must not just listen to this sermon, we also must apply it. This week, along with studying what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through to 7, we will study what Jesus said in Matthew 13 about applying his words to our lives. Sunday, April 10. Principles and Standards Question. Skim through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7. Summarise on the lines below what stands out the most in your mind about it, about what it says to you. So what I'll do, I'll read parts of it, but mostly I'll read, which in my Bible are the headings. Uh, for each section, and I'm sure you'll remember many of uh, the contents just by the headings. Let's begin at chapter 5 and verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Then in chapter 5, verse 13, he begins his discourse on believers who are the salt and the light. And then in verse 17, he talks about how Christ fulfills the law. In verse 21, murder begins in the heart. Verse 27, adultery begins in the heart. In verse 31, marriage is sacred and binding. For Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. And then verse 33, Jesus forbids oaths. And then in verse 38, he talks about going the second mile. Verse 39, he says, But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Verse 43, he talks about loving your enemies. And then in chapter 6, Do good to please God. Let's read verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you that they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And then verse 5 of chapter 6, he begins with the story of the model prayer. And verse 8, verse 9, In this manner therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, for ever. Amen. And then in verse 16 of chapter 6, fasting to be seen only by God. And then verse 19, it's, he talks about laying up treasures in heaven. And verse 22, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. And then verse 24, you cannot serve God and riches. And verse 25, do not worry. And who could forget verse 26? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? And then chapter 7 begins with that amazing passage, Do not judge. Judge not 
that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? And then verse 7 of chapter 7. Jesus tells us to keep asking and seeking and knocking. Verse 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. And verse 13, he talks about the narrow way. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. And verse 15, You will know them by their fruits. Beware of false prophets, he said, who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And verse 21, I never knew you. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And then he concludes chapter 7 with verse 24, beginning the story of building on the rock. He says, Therefore whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell." and great was its fall. And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. From the book The New American Commentary on Matthew, Craig L. Bloomberg writes, Perhaps no other religious discourse in the history of humanity has attracted the attention which has been devoted to the Sermon on the Mount. Philosophers and activists from many non-Christian perspectives who have refused to worship Jesus nevertheless have admitted his ethic. In the 20th century, Mohandas Gandhi was the sermon's most famous non-Christian devotee. End of quote. This sermon has been reviewed in many different ways. Some see it as an impossibly high moral standard that drives us to our knees and causes us to claim the righteousness of Jesus as our only hope of salvation, because we all have fallen far short of the divine standard that God calls us to, as revealed in the Sermon on the Mount. Others see it as a discourse in civil ethics, a call to pacifism. Some have seen it in the social gospel, a call to bring the kingdom of God to earth by human effort. In a sense, probably everyone brings something of himself or herself into this sermon because it so powerfully touches us in crucial areas of our lives. Thus, we all react to it in our own way. Ellen White writes in The Desire of Ages, page 299, In the Sermon on the Mount, he sought to undo the work that had been wrought by false education and to give his hearers a right conception of his kingdom and of his own character. The truths he taught are no less important to us than to the multitude that followed him. We, no less than they, need to learn the foundation principles of the kingdom of God. End of quote. Thus, 
Whatever else we bring to it, the Sermon on the Mount gives us the foundation principles of God's kingdom. It tells us what God is like as the ruler of his kingdom and tells us what God calls us to be like as subjects of his kingdom. It's a radical call from the principles and standards of the fleeting kingdoms of this world to the principles and standards of the one kingdom that will exist forever. As you read in Daniel 7.27, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Monday, April 11, the Sermon versus the Law. Some Christians view the Sermon on the Mount as a new law of Christ, one that replaced the law of God. They say that a system of legalism was now replaced with a system of grace, or that Jesus' law differs from the law of God itself. These views are misconceptions about the Sermon on the Mount. Question. What do the following texts say about the law, and indirectly about the idea that somehow the law, that is, the Ten Commandments, was replaced by the Sermon on the Mount? First of all, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfil. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then verse uh, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. And verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And let's have a look too at James chapter 2 verses 10 to 11. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Craig S. Keener writes in 
the Gospel of Matthew as socio-rhetorical commentary on pages 161 and 162, most Jewish people understood the commandments in the context of grace. Given Jesus' demands for greater grace in practice, he undoubtedly intended the kingdom demands in light of grace. In the Gospel narratives, Jesus embraces those who humble themselves, acknowledging God's right to rule, even if in practice they fall short of the goal of moral perfection. But the kingdom of grace Jesus proclaimed was not the workless grace of much of Western Christendom. In the Gospels, the kingdom message transforms those who meekly embrace it, just as it crushes the arrogant, the religiously and socially satisfied. End of quote. Question. Read Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. How does this help us to understand that Salvation has always been by faith. Genesis 15 and verse 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. The faith of Jesus Christ was not a new faith. It was the same faith from the fall onward. The Sermon on the Mount wasn't salvation by grace replacing salvation by works. It was always salvation by grace. The children of Israel were saved by grace at the Red Sea before they were asked to obey at Sinai in Exodus 20 verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So to finish the day, what should your own experience with the Lord and his law teach you about why salvation has always had to be by faith and not by law? Tuesday, April 12, The Righteousness of the Scribes and Pharisees Question. Read Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. What does Jesus mean when he says that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven? Matthew 5 verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Though salvation has always been by faith, and though Judaism, as it should have been practiced, was always a system of grace, legalism did creep in, as it can in any religion that takes obedience seriously, such as Seventh-day Adventism. At the time of Christ, many, but not all of the religious leaders, had fallen into a kind of hard religious orthodoxy, destitute of contrition, tenderness or love, Ellen White writes in Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, that left them with no power to preserve the world from corruption. And that was page 53. Mere outward forms, especially those that are man-made, have no power to change lives or transform character. The only true faith is that which works by love, as we read in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. That alone is what makes outward actions acceptable in the sight 
of God. Question. Read Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through to 8. In what ways is this a summary of the Sermon on the Mount? So let's have a look at Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through to 8. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow down myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Even in Old Testament times, the sacrifices were not an end in themselves, but a means to an end. And that end was a life in which followers of God reflect the love and character of God, something that could be done only through a complete surrender to God and a realization of our utter dependence on His saving grace. Despite all their outward appearances of piety and faith, many of the scribes and Pharisees were definitely not a model of how a follower of the Lord should live. So to finish the day, even if you are a great believer in salvation by faith alone and that only Jesus' righteousness can save you, how can you be sure that even subtle forms of legalism don't creep in? Wednesday, April 13. The Principles of the Kingdom Question. Perhaps the most radical teaching of Jesus is found in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48. Read the text. How are we, especially as sinners, supposed to do that? Matthew 5 verse 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Of all the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, this has to be the one of the most amazing, the most extreme. To be as perfect as your Father in heaven? What does that mean? A crucial component in understanding this text is found in the first word of it, therefore. That is, it implies a conclusion, an inference from what came before. What did come before? Well, that brings us to our next question. Read Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 47. How do these verses, which are then brought to a close with Matthew 5, 48, help us to understand better what Jesus meant by Matthew 5, 48? And we'll also have a look at Luke chapter 6 and verse 36 while we do that. But first of all, Matthew 5, beginning at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only... What do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? 
And then verse 48, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let's have a look at Luke 6.36, Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. This isn't the first time an idea like this is seen in the Bible. Way back in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 19, verse 2, the Lord says to his people, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In Luke 6.36, Jesus said, Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. The whole context here in Matthew 5.43-48 is not about an outward conformity to rules and standards, however important that may be. Instead, the whole focus on this section deals with loving people, not just those whom anyone could love, but those whom, by the world's standards, we would not generally love. Again, this is about the standards of God's kingdom, not man's. The important thing to remember here is that God does not ask of us anything that he cannot accomplish in us. If left to ourselves, if dominated by our sinful and selfish hearts, who would love their enemies? That's not how the world works. But are we not now citizens of another kingdom? We have the promise that if we surrender ourselves to God, then, as it says in Philippians 1.6, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And what greater work could God do in us than to get us, in our own sphere, to love as He loves us? And so to finish today, how different would your life be right now were you to love your enemies? Thursday, April 14, Receiving the Words of the Kingdom A mountaintop wasn't the only place Jesus preached. He preached the same message of the kingdom all over Israel. Matthew 13 records Jesus' teaching from a boat, while all the people stood on the shore, as it said in verse 2. Jesus then told the people parables intended to drive home the importance of not only hearing his word, but applying it. Question. Read Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 52. What is being said here in these parables that is of particular importance to us in understanding how to apply to our lives the truths revealed in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 13, beginning at verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he said to them, Therefore, 
Every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Two points stand out in the first two of these stories. In both there is the idea of separation, of getting rid of what one has in order to obtain something new, be it treasure in a field or a pearl. The other crucial point is the great value each man placed on what he had found. In both cases they went and sold all that they possessed in order to get it. Though we cannot buy salvation, the point of the parables is clear. Nothing we have in this kingdom, this world, is worth our losing out on the next one. As it says in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 and 2, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Thus, to apply to our lives what God asks of us, we need to make a choice to separate ourselves from all the things of the world, of the flesh, and let God's Spirit fill us instead. As we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 10, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. This might not be easy. It will require a death to self and a taking up of one's cross. But if we always have before us the value and the worth of what we are promised, we should have all the motivation we need to make the choices that we must. And so to finish today, read the next parable in Matthew 13 verses 47 to 50. This, too, is talking about a separation. In what ways does the separation seen in the first two parables help us to understand what is happening in the third parable? Matthew 13, beginning at verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Friday, April 15. In the parable of Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46, the men found something of great value. 
given the context, especially after Jesus told the third parable in verses 47 to 50, what they found was the truth, the truth that leads to eternal life as opposed to eternal destruction in the furnace of fire. This is important because we live in an age where the idea of truth itself is considered old-fashioned at best or dangerous at worst. And unfortunately, this is a false idea that some Christians have brought into. Nevertheless, the message of these parables is that not only does truth exist, but that truth will make a difference for eternity in every human life. This shouldn't be surprising. The Bible is predicated on the idea of absolute truth. After all, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If that is not stating an absolute truth, what is? Of course, when someone with as much knowledge of the truth as Paul could say, that we know in part, in 1 Corinthians thirteen nine, it's obvious that there's a lot we don't know. But his mere statement that we know in part implies that there's more truth to know, truth that literally makes a difference, either for eternal life or eternal death. Eternal life or eternal death? It doesn't get more absolute than that. And that brings us to our two discussion questions for this week. One, what would it be like living in a world where everyone followed the principles found in the Sermon on the Mount? And two, Jesus told the parable of the wise and foolish builders in Matthew 7, verses 24 and 27, in sight of the shores of the Sea of Galilee. In dry season, the difference in the appearance of the rock and the sand on the shores was almost imperceptible, and a builder could build his house on sand, thinking it was rock. When the rains came, the sandy foundation was revealed and the house collapsed. Jesus compares those who hear his words but don't practice them to a sandy foundation. How do the storms of our own lives reveal whether our foundation is of rock or sand? How can we have a foundation that will keep us stable and firm even amid the worst of trials? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled An Amazing Ride, Part 1. Note, the following first-hand stories are from Carol Boehm, wife of Wayne Boehm, former president of the Solomon Islands Mission. He now serves as manager of the Hope Channel in Sydney, Australia, where this podcast is based. You get it from the Hope Channel Australia website. One of the things I have learned in the Solomon Islands is to plan big for God, no matter how few your resources. Some amazing things have been achieved during the past two years. A huge mission outreach, the setting up of a nationwide radio station, a health program that has reached more than 100 people and is exploding in popularity, smaller missions on every island and large-scale renovations at Betacama Adventist College. How was all this achieved with no money? God has moved on the hearts of so many people who have given generously, and he has multiplied their gifts stretched further than we ever dreamed possible. 
Another lesson I've learned is to never be ashamed of God. The Solomon Islanders talk openly about their loving father. They never hesitate to say grace in public, to pray in a huddle at airports or wharves, or to invite strangers to meetings or socials. Their boldness has been a silent witness to me. Exciting things are happening at Savo, our closest neighbouring island. We have tried in vain on several occasions to witness to a few of the villagers there. The last time our pastor tried, he was expelled from the area. But then the annual Dorcas Federation met in Savo and things began to change. Every year, dozens of Seventh-day Adventist Dorcas members from area churches visit a remote area where there is much need. They enter the village singing so that everyone knows they are there. They offer workshops on cooking, sewing, dyeing fabric, sewing machine repair, hospitality and Bible study. One day is set aside for what they call highways and byways. This is when they distribute bundles of clothing and food and mix with the locals. The ladies turn the region upside down. While the women are being the hands and feet of Jesus, the men cook for them, enabling them to focus completely on their ministry. The women make friends and the men follow up with meetings and baptism. They make a fantastic team. And this story is to be continued in next week's Inside Story. I can't wait. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful. 